Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. For the rest of us, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 23. Isaiah chapter 23 is our text for this morning. Now, last Sunday, we began surveying these chapters, uh, 13 to 23, and we pointed out that these 11 chapters uh, take us behind the scenes, if you will, uh, and make clear that the Lord God, the Holy One in Israel, is both the sovereign Lord of history, and we are reminded that He is the righteous judge who deals um, justly with the wicked and the righteous at the appropriate time. And so we, we, we want to, you know, think about these chapters in that context. Remember, Isaiah is prophesying in this time, 700-ish to uh, late 700s, uh, early uh, six, or late, I don't know how it's backwards, it's, what is it, 700 AD to 6-something AD, I think he, uh, he is prophesying in the southern kingdom of Judah and his ministry has, uh, spans four kings. It, it travels from, uh, and even into a fifth, really. And um, whether it was rebellious King Ahaz or the relatively honorable reign of Uzziah, Jotham, and Hezekiah, the same underlying spiritual principle is uh, hounding God's people, and that is that they are not sure that they can or even want to trust uh, that what God has said, and as a result, they have put their trust in a thousand other things. And the big picture, we said the big picture contribution of these chapters is uh, to our understanding of God is to teach us that all the nations, all the nations are under the sovereign control of our God. From the, everything from the grandest to the simplest actions that we see around us, they are under his sovereign control. And, and because then the Lord is the God of heaven and earth, it is pointless to look to earthly power. It is pointless to look to um, politics. It is pointless, as we're going to see this morning, to look at possessions as if they can be our Savior. Rather, God's people must build their foundation of their lives upon the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, and the promises contained within his written word. And so that is what we began looking at last Sunday. The chapters 13 to 23 are a series of, of prophecies. They're, they're called oracles, depending on your translation. And the literal term is a burden. It's, it's a prophetic utterance that must be unloaded. And he, they are burdens for the Gentile nations of the ancient Near Eastern world that Isaiah's um, uh, contemporaries knew in that day. We said you can break this whole section down into two parts of equal blocks. There's five burdens for uh, in chapters 13 to 20, and there's a second set of five burdens in chapters 21 to 23. The first set of five is more specific in terms of their uh, who they're addressed to and, and some of the details of them. And the second set on the whole is more generalized. But there's even more evidence of spirit-wrought intentionality here, I think, that we gloss over as we read this. Um, the way these burdens are brought together, the way they're organized in the text and ordered by Isaiah are, are meaningful. For example, each set of five burdens begins with Babylon, chapter 13 and again in chapter 21. Uh, because we said more than any other name, Babylon exemplifies man's sinful desire to be his own savior. And, uh, and so we see that at the front of each of these. But it's not just the first oracle in each set that has God's fingerprints on it, intentionality on it, but also the final 
burden in each set does the same. The fifth burden, like we looked at last Sunday, it, it was directed at Egypt. And that, um, that oracle for Egypt rounds out that first set of five, and it calls out the world's politics, pressing in on alluring God's people. We, it points out that is a false hope. And so we must turn away from it. And as we're going to see this morning now, the 10th burden, which concludes the second set of five in chapter 23, is directed at Tyre. And this burden calls out the world's wealth pressing in, on and upon, pressing in upon and tempting God's people and shows us that that is a false hope as well. And interestingly enough, as we'll go through the text this morning, Egypt is mentioned three times in chapter 23, showing, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these prophetic messages form a matched pair with a similar theme, purpose, and instruction for God's people. So, you know, as we've read through this, hopefully you've been reading as we've been going through it, each section. Sometimes when we read the prophets, when we read these portions of Scripture, on the face of it, they seem to make no sense, <laughs> right? Um, let's be honest. We ask ourselves questions like, why is this here? Um, why does he single out this group of people and not that group of people? Um, and why is he giving us these details? Why are these word pictures uh, communicated in, that, in this way? And, and they can leave us scratching our heads. And I think it is a good reminder for us that the more we study the Word of God, the more we see the fingerprints of divine inspiration are all over it. That has been certainly my uh, uh, experience in studying through this book. Just because we initially don't understand something, just because we don't get it, it doesn't mean that it's less valuable. It doesn't mean that it is not true or that it is um, corrupted from its original form, like some of the higher critics will uh, allege. The problem is not with the text. The problem is with us. And with our hearts, we are so far removed from the original context. Uh, we have such a lack of understanding at times. Our immaturity and ignorance of the totality of the word of God is usually the problem, not the word. In fact, always the problem. <laughs> it's not the word. But the longer you, you walk with Christ, the deeper you dig into his word in partnership with the wisdom of his church, which is how we interpret the Bible. We do not interpret the Bible apart from the wisdom of the church. The more what on the surface looks like barren rock begins to yield heavenly riches. And that hopefully will be our experience as we go through the book of Isaiah. And it, it yields heavenly riches, not in terms of foretelling detailed events of America's future or revealing secret mysteries about this contemporary country or that contemporary country. What it yields heavenly riches in that they help us to know who our God is, right? He is omnipotent. He is trustworthy. He is a God who keeps his promises. We, we learn that he is a God who has compassion on the lowly and those who turn to him in faith. He is a God who saves sinners. Like those are the riches that are on earth as we study these portions of scripture, so if you're frustrated, if you're confused, if you're not sure what to make of all the, all the um, figurative language and these uh, very specific contextual um, descriptors, descriptors, don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Don't walk away. There is so much here for us in the text. These chapters serve as a timeless and life-giving, uh, serve a timeless and life-giving purpose, and we can't miss that. They're meant to shape our conviction, 
that our God is sovereignly directing every molecule of human history toward his eternal kingdom purposes. He is, in other words, our God reigns. And that is the point of these chapters. But we got to be honest, we don't live like that all the time. We don't live as if our God reigns. Even as believers, we are a lot more like Judah than we want to acknowledge. We put far too much trust in the nations. We put far too much trust in the, the, our own abilities and our own resourcefulness. And we, as we'll see this morning, put far too much trust in our earthly possessions and what we, what we have. And to our shame, we mimic the priorities and the methods and the confidences of the world. And that is why we need these portions of Scripture. We can trust God, we can obey His Word, and we can have confidence in Him. And that is what these chapters are bringing to the surface. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And that is really the takeaway from chapters 13 to 23. And we saw last week, he must be trusted above human power. We saw that in chapter 13. We also saw in chapter 19 and 20 that he must be trusted among human poli- above human politics. And lastly, as we're going to see this morning, God must be trusted above earthly possessions. And we're going to see that in chapter 23. There's no human agency, no earthly efforts, no worldly wealth is able to thwart the Holy One of Israel from accomplishing his will. And what we're going to see specifically this morning is that earthly possessions and wealth, that is a false hope. That is what we've anchored our hearts to because all that we have, all that we have is God's and it resides within his control. So I want to break the text down for us into three sections just to help us uh, understand the, 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 the movement of this um, oracle, this burden directed to Tyre. In verses 1 to 7, we're going to see a devastating reckoning. In verses 8 to 14, there will be a stunning realization. And in verses 15 to 18, uh, Isaiah gives us a gracious, describes a gracious restoration. So that's kind of the framework of our text this morning. 1 to 7, a devastating reckoning. 8 to 14, a stunning realization. And then lastly, a gracious restoration. I want to begin in verses 1 to 7 where as we consider this burden for Tyre in verses uh, 1 to 7, we'll see Isaiah reveal a devastating reckoning. Isaiah addresses this burden, you see in verse 1, to Tyre, which was a powerful uh, port city on the northeastern co- uh, northwestern coast of Israel. Tyre and its nearby neighbor, Sidon, are linked together and spoken of uh, interchangeably in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament too. They, they go together. Tyre and Sidon were an important um, port city shipbuilding area, famous. Sidon especially was famous for its purple dyes, its glassware, and, um, and Tyre was, was known for its economic um, interactions with all the surrounding nations. So it's a lot like um, contemporary context, like Minneapolis, St. Paul. They're kind of two separate cities, but we think of them as one city, or Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. There's technically two cities, um, but... Uh, we think of them as as one. And that's how we think about, we should think about Tyre and Sidon. They go together. Tyre has a long and ancient history. Herodotus, the Greek historian, dates Tyre's origins as far back as 2700 BC. 
So um, it was occupied. He describes it as one of the greatest of the Phoenician city-states. And even in, um, in the uh, 10th century BC, David and Solomon, Tyre is linking arms with Israel in, uh, in, with Hiram, uh, establishing a strong diplomatic and economic ties with the, the kingdom of Israel, supplying them with wood and stone and skilled labor in construction of the temple in Jerusalem. So Tyre and Sidon were frequently attacked, but for the most part, they endured. And because it was such an economic powerhouse throughout the Mediterranean, it almost always managed to just keep on trucking. Um, they just never quite got um, taken over. The point being then, as we come to the text, we need to understand the context in which this is given. Tyre and Sidon at this time have a reputation as being strong. They have a reputation as being stable and durable, both politically and especially economically. They are a, they are a force to be reckoned with. And so when God commands Isaiah to prophesy here as he does in verses 1 and following, that Tyre is destroyed without house or harbor, it would have been almost inconceivable to his hearers. Tyre? Are you serious? They're wiped out? I mean, are you kidding me? And not only that, and you see that in verse 1, he says, Tyre is destroyed without house and a harbor, and it is reported to them from the land of Cyprus. So not only is the land destroyed, but he describes a future judgment in which those who uh, were out on the sea sailing, trading, um, in the midst of their economic work, they find out about this while they're out overseas, almost as if it came on suddenly and unexpectedly. He says, Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed without house or harbor. Now, Tarshish was likely a reference to an area in Spain called uh, Tartessus, which is, um, again, so this is very far from Tyre. And so ships of Tarshish are become a descriptor, a descriptor of ships capable of the longest voyages. Again, just speaks to their economic superiority. What he describes here is news that is so shocking and so unbelievable that this normally bustling, high-activity port region with its, imp- with its importing and exporting merchants and sailors, all, you know, you think about a port city, things are always going on. There's a constant movement. All they can do, verse 2, at the beginning of verse 2, is to be silent. This is how devastating this judgment is going to be. Uh, Trading partners in and around the Mediterranean made sure that for hundreds of years, Tyre was a commercial hub. Uh, Egypt, along with many of the surrounding nations, had moved all of their exports throughout the ancient Near Eastern world through Tyre. And so we see him describing their glory in verses 2 and 3. He says, you merchants of Sidon, your messengers crossed the sea. And we're on many waters. The grain of the Nile, the harvest of the river was her revenue. And she was the market of nations. The picture here is that Tyre is indeed this, this market of the nations, this Wall Street of the nations. All the pieces move through them. But here we see that all economic activity has abruptly and devastatingly ground to a halt. And he says, 
when he describes this, he, he goes on to describe in verse 4 the sea, and he, he uses this uh, personification here. Again, there's a lot of rich figurative language in, this, in the prophets, and that is meant to capture attention. It's also meant to hold our interest as a reader, as a listener. He describes the sea in verse 4 as a mourning mother who has no children left to rear because Tyre and Sidon's ships are no longer sailing on the waves. Do you see that in verse 4? Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea speaks, the stronghold of the, of the sea say, saying, I have neither travailed nor given birth, I have neither brought up young men nor reared young virgins. It's like all the ships are gone. All her children, the sea, have disappeared. The consequences then reverberate throughout the world, not just within that region, but throughout the world. Egypt, whose economic and political fortunes were very much connected to Tyre, will feel the devastation of this destruction. Excuse me, verse 5. It says, when the report reaches Egypt... They, Egypt, will be in anguish at the report of Tyre. So now we see that God's judgment reverberates out, not just in one region, but to the whole world as it's described here in these opening five verses. And so instead of searching the seas and riding across the seas for profit, verses 6 and 7 tell us, that the residents of Tyre are going to travel across the sea as refugees in search of a home. He says, pass over to Tarshish. Go go to Spain. Wail, O inhabitants of the coastland. Is this your jubilant city, whose origin is from antiquity, whose feet used to carry her to colonize distant places? What he describes here in verses 1 to 7 is a future judgment that will fall on Tyre, and it is a devastating reckoning. They are being judged, and it is decisive. As we can see here in these opening verses, it is a comprehensive judgment. They are brought to nothing. As you read this, the implication for Isaiah's audience in Judah is this. As they would have heard him say this, if this once powerful, economically vibrant commercial titan, if they can be cut down and brought to nothing, then no one is safe. That that is the point. It underscores, these verses underscore the reality about the uncertainty of riches. Or Proverbs 23, verse 4 and 5, do not weary yourself, Solomon says, to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle and flies toward the heavens. Or later on in Proverbs 27 and verse 24, where he tells us, Riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. This is the message of these verses. It's just put in a different form. Uh, Wealth and economic prestige, both individually and collectively, they give us a sense of invincibility, don't they? I'm secure because I have all this money in my bank account. I have this money in my retirement account. Uh, I I have these investments. Our our nation is vitally involved in these things, and so we're safe. We're secure. But that's an illusion. It's an illusion. Because as quickly as a bird can spread its wings and take flight, that security, that blessing can be gone. It is a false hope. You say, well, Isaiah doesn't say why. Why? Tyre is being destroyed here. Maybe they made some foolish moves. 
maybe this is more a mess of their own doing. Maybe they're just reaping what they've sown. You know, maybe they're foolish. And so this is why they find themselves in this position of, of destruction. Well, whereas I, on the other hand, am much more careful. I am much more conservative and much wiser. And so I seriously doubt I'd ever put myself in, in that kind of a situation. And what Isaiah makes clear then in verses 8 to 14 is that Tyre doesn't find itself under judgment and destroyed because of human schemes. What Isaiah reveals Secondly, and this is our second point, in verses 8 to 14, he reveals a stunning revelation. Because the question would be raised, how did this happen? How does this happen? Who took mighty tire, this too-big-to-fail enterprise, and brought it to its knees? And we see in verses 8 and uh, following who it was. Who, who has planned, verse 8, this against Tyre? the bestower of crown, whose crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth. Who, who is responsible for this? Verse 9, the Lord of hosts has planned it. To defile the pride of all beauty, to despise all the honored of the earth. Overflow your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no more restraint. He has stretched out his hand. This is God. He's referring to God. God has stretched out his hand over the sea. He has made the kingdoms tremble. The Lord has given a command concerning Canaan to demolish its strongholds. He has said, you shall exult no more, O crushed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, pass over to Cyprus. Even there you will find no rest. The answer to the question is clear. Tyre doesn't fall because of human foolishness or their own misgivings. And they don't trip themselves up. They don't make one too many moves that lead to their their demise. It is none other than the sovereign work of the Lord of hosts. This is God's work. This is God's judgment. He is so powerful. This work is so effortless for him that the accomplishment of it is a drop in the bucket. Do you notice that? He says all he has to do is stretch out his hand and the kingdoms tremble. All he has to do is utter a word and the whole regions of the coastal plain are demolished. Even if they run, they'll have no place to hide to escape God's devastating judgment. At the end of verse 12, they can flee to Cyprus. But the reality is that the Assyrians, which were also a fearsome superpower under God's control, as we saw in previous chapters, they would not allow them to run there and rest as they fled. No sane kingdom would dare to give the people of Tyre refuge out of fear that Assyria would come after them for harboring their enemies. And the case in point is laid out in verse 13. He says, Behold, the land of the Chaldeans, he's speaking of the Babylonians, He says, this is the people which was not. Literally, this is a non-existent people now. Assyria appointed it, the Chaldeans, for desert creatures. They erected their siege towers. They stripped its palaces. They made it a ruin. He says, if you don't think that you can, if you think you can run and hide and Assyria won't come, look at Babylon. Look what Assyria at this time had done to Babylon. It's reported that when Sargon II, who was the um, king of Assyria, was crowned, 
seven kings from Cyprus were present at that coronation at this time. And uh, he records that when these kings heard what he, what Sargon was doing in Babylon, it says their hearts were rent and fear fell on them. They knew who he was. They knew what Assyria could accomplish. And so he says, you will run, but no one will give you rest or refuge. You will be basically refugees with no home. And so verses, uh, verse 14 ends where verse 1 began with Tyre lamenting the fortress of their economic power and prestige having been leveled. And it's all the Lord's doing. Look at verse 14. He says, Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is destroyed. This is a stunning realization for Tyre. But it would have been a stunning real, real revelation for Judah because ultimately these, these were given for Judah. But it also should cause God's people everywhere to be in awe as well to the reality that while we may plan our ways, it is the Lord who directs our steps. We have to acknowledge that. As James says in chapter 4, verse 15, about our planning and our hope and our trust in the future, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live or do this or that. Anything other than that is boastful, arrogance, and evil. And so money, economic prosperity, earthly possessions, they are all we have to understand they are all ultimately within the Lord's control and not ours. He distributes it to whom he wishes, and he takes it back from whom he wishes, and no one can steady his hand. And so the message resonates out again loud and clear as you read these verses, that earthly wealth and its earthly owners are a false hope. But as with each of these burdens, God's sovereign power is not just for judgment, but it is also for salvation. It's not just for tearing down, it is also for tearing down in order to establish a righteous remnant among the nations. And that is what we see spelled out in verses 15 to 18. In verses 15 to 18, Isaiah spells out the future history of Tyre, both in the short term and the long term, and what we'll call this section a glorious restoration, a glorious restoration. As it relates to the short term, Isaiah describes a 70-year period in which Tyre would remain under judgment, at which point they would be restored. She would regain, Tyre would regain her place as an economic engine with her prosperity reinstated. And yet, even after that divine punishment, there's no lasting spiritual change. Look at verse 15. He says, now in that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years like the days of one king. And at the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the harlot. Take your harp, walk about the city, O forgotten harlot. Pluck the strings skillfully. Sing many songs that you may be remembered. It's just a, uh, he's, he's just using very um, graphic language here to describe a, a prostitute who's sort of plying her trade and trying to gain attention for herself. He says, that's what Tyre will do after this period of judgment. And it will come about at the end of 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre. And then he, she will go back to her harlot's wages and play the harlot with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. So after 70 years, Tyre will be reinstated and restored. She'll be a prostitute returning to her former ways, chasing after money and profit, 
without acknowledging God as the giver of that wealth. But in the same way that God's punishment was a result of the Lord's sovereign work, we see here that Tyre's restoration will also be the Lord's sovereign work. That's why he says in verse 12, the Lord will visit Tyre. Visit in terms of, of come down and affect something. And we know historically that this judgment and recovery preliminary way in a short term took place between 701 BC after the Assyrian conqueror Sennacherib campaigned and took Tyre down. And, uh, and then, of course, when Assyria's influence waned around 630 BC, Tyre kind of sprung back to life. And so what we see here is this near-term fulfillment that would have confirmed the words of the prophet. And we recognize that the Lord takes away and the Lord gives, right? And so his name is to be blessed. But again, verses 15 to 17 describe a near-term fulfillment. But as we come to verse 18, between verse 17 and verse 18, Isaiah jumps from the near future to the end of the age. The near-term fulfillment is put forward as a proof of the long-term fulfillment which confirms the truthfulness of the prophet's words. And in verse 18, we, just, we read about a new tire. And, 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 and it's not just renewed economically, it's also renewed spiritually. He says, Her gain and her harlot's wages will be set apart to the Lord. It will not be stored up or hoarded, but her gain will become sufficient food and choice attire for those who dwell in the presence of the Lord. So Isaiah is looking ahead, and what he sees by God's revelation is a priestly status given to Tyre where all her resources are literally holy to the Lord. That's the descriptor that you see there in verse 18, set apart to the Lord, it's literally holy to the Lord. This is how the priests and their instruments were described in Deuteronomy 23 and verse 18. They are holy to the Lord. What was once rejected, bringing in harlot's wages as an offering in the Lord's temple was forbidden in the Old Testament law. Now we see it as consecrated to God. What was once corrupted in verse 18 we see has been transformed. The only explanation for this is that a new spirit has taken hold. And with this spirit, instead of storing up and acquiring and hoarding, for selfish gain, now, what do we see? What do we see? Sharing, generosity, and provision. Tyre here is linked up with and in harmony with those who dwell in the presence of the Lord. And so what Isaiah foresees here is the Lord's sovereign ingathering of the Gentile nation of Tyre. This is God's sovereign work moving outward to the nations through his spirit under the banner of Messiah, whom we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, Psalm 87 verse 4 specifically names Tyre among the Gentile nations that would one day share in Israel's salvation. They will be naturalized citizens is kind of the, the summary of what he says there in Psalm 87 verse 4. You can look at it. If you have a moment. The reality is this. Wealth is a gift from God. And in the end, it eventually returns to the one who gives it. Right? This is why God's people should not trust in riches, but in God who gives himself 
and all that we need, every good and perfect gift. We need to trust him and not in those resources. How God's people think about and relate to money and material possessions is very much a barometer of our spiritual maturity. Jesus himself draws a line in the sand. In Matthew 6 and verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. He, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He says, You cannot serve God and wealth. And uh, so money, of course, is not in it itself the problem. It's the love of it that gets us. It's the desiring of it above all else that gets us. And alongside that, are placing our trust in that. We can't let that happen. Money is a tool that can be used for incredible good to bless others and lessen their suffering, but it's also the root, as Paul says to Timothy, of every kind of evil, plunging men into ruin and oppressing the lowly. It can purchase friends for eternity when invested in gospel purposes, as Jesus describes in the Gospels, but it can also pierce the soul and drag the sinner down to the pit of hell. Look at the rich young ruler. But godliness, a trust in and dependence upon God in Christ as the sovereign Lord of history, godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. We have brought nothing into this world, as Paul says to Timothy, and we can take nothing out of it. And so if the Lord sovereignly seen fit to give you much, remember to give him all the glory for that and to be generous toward those around us, keeping your hope firmly anchored to Christ and Christ alone. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So if the Lord's given you much, we need to remember not to put our trust in those things. And if the Lord has seen fit to give you little, or even just less than those around you, which is often the case for many of us, we need to be thankful. We need to be thankful for our daily food and covering. We shouldn't look at others with envy and greed. But we have to recognize that our Heavenly Father takes care of us. He meets our every need. Just as he takes care of the birds of the air, clothes the grass of the field with flowers, he can be trusted to take care of your essential needs. So we don't need to be envious. We don't need to be anxious. We can trust him and we can live for him. I think a final point of application that's worth drawing out here is to remember that there is a Sabbath rest for God's people on the horizon. There is a Sabbath rest on the horizon. People from Tyre and Sidon, people from Egypt and Assyria, every tribe and tongue and people and nation who have trusted in Christ, there is a Sabbath rest coming for God's people where every need will be met. And where they'll be met even before we have realized that we need it. And every joy and delight will be ours. Every, and, and ever increasingly so as we see Christ face to face. I mean, this is, the, this is the heartbeat of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4. And so the application is this. Therefore, be diligent to enter that rest. Be diligent to enter that rest. Or as we like to say around here, run to win. <laughs> run to win. And just as judgment was not the end of the story for Tyre, 
It doesn't have to be the end of the story for you. That's, I think, the takeaway here. Jesus Christ took you, the sinner's judgment, upon himself at the cross so that you might receive his perfect righteousness as a gift of his grace on the basis of faith. So whatever it is that you trust in this morning, whatever it is you have anchored your soul to, maybe it's money, maybe it's your own resourcefulness, your own skills, maybe it's you've put your trust in wielding some kind of political power or influence, maybe you've put your trust in your good deeds, in your good works, or just at the end of the day you have some vague hope that it's all going to work out for you at the last day. I promise you that is a false hope. That is a false hope. And you have an opportunity this morning to throw yourself on the mercy of Christ, God in human flesh, because he alone can forgive sin, and he alone can make you righteous, and he alone has everlasting life, having risen from the grave on the third day. The sovereign Lord of history is the one who is working all things together for the good of those who trust him. And so if we're in him, we don't have to worry about those things. We we don't have to become anxious about them, as Jesus says. We don't have to worry, right? Fix your heart and mind on God and his kingdom, right? Make, Make that the heartbeat of our lives. And then he says, all these other things, all these other things, he says, will be added unto you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. He says, each day has enough trouble of its own. So if you're here this morning and you haven't placed your trust in Christ, this is my invitation to you is don't walk out of here this morning without thinking long and hard, what is my relationship to the Lord Jesus? Do I know him? Do am I trusting him? Because all other trusts are a false hope. And so as we come to the end of this section, in many ways, Isaiah has kind of just driven that nail home um, as many ways as he possibly can. just keeps hammering and hammering and hammering at this nail that God is the sovereign of the nations. As we come to chapters 24 and 27 next Sunday, we will see him describing in detail, uh, in rich imagery, this glorious future deliverance, his judgment, and his restoration that is yet to come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you're a God who keeps your promises and you're a God who controls all things. Lord, uh, not just the big things we see happening around us, but every little thing is happening according to your sovereign purposes and control. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to live in light of that. May we uh, d- dislodge us from an- anything that we have anchored ourselves to in terms of the things we've covered these last two Sundays. May- may- maybe our the weak spot in our in our armor, Lord, is, is that we're trusting in human power. We think that that's the path to life. Or maybe we think politics is the, is the way in which the kingdom is going to come. Or maybe, maybe, Lord, we have an implicit trust in our resources or even just the stability of things around us, our economy, our country, our whatever. Uh, Lord, none of that is a, none of that is a safe, um, safe refuge. But Christ, Christ, you are that refuge. And you, all who come to you, you will in no wise cast down. So, Lord, may you draw hearts to yourself this morning. And as we come to the Lord's table, we pray that we would renew that um, commitment to you as a church, as those who've been partakers of that new covenant blessings. We know that you're a God who keeps your promises. And so we eat 
and drink uh, the bread and the cup in faith, Lord, that you are coming back. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.